Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Today we're talking with Bill Derezowitz. He used to be a professor at Yale and Columbia, and in 2008, Bill became a full-time writer. He's written for just about everyone from the New York Times to the Atlantic, Harper's, The Nation, The New Republic, American Scholar. Aside from his incredible interview with Stephen Colbert, and if you haven't seen it, check it out, Colbert Report, Bill Derezowitz, the only thing is... You just have to figure out how to spell Bill DeResowitz when you're typing it into Google. Um, but what's really cool about Bill, he's written two books, and he's actually working on a third one right now. His first two books, one of them is a Jane Austen education about the lessons that he's learned from reading Jane Austen. And his second book is Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite and the Way to a Meaningful Life. We're interested to talk to him about how you can talk to teenagers about their future and about what they want out of life. All that and more coming up on the show. Really excited. So there's something going on today that I've noticed with a lot of parents and their teenagers that I think is interesting. You know, if your teenager is really successful, is the captain of the football team, is the class president, it makes you look good. I almost want to call it like trophy children, and I think it leads to what you write about in your book, which is hoping that your child will fit into one of these prescribed routes to success. You know, you go to an Ivy League school, you get a good education, you get a good job, high paying salary. And your idea of a successful kid as a parent might be different from your teenager's idea of what it would mean to them to be successful. And so there might be kind of these two conflicting views of what it means to do something meaningful. How do we reconcile that? Um, I, I think you've really touched upon the essential question, which is, what does success mean? And yeah. I think what we need to help our kids do is to figure out for themselves what success means. Maybe it would be better if we didn't use that word at all, because it has so many connotations. And mm -hmm. in some ways, it carries with it the very problem that we're addressing, which is the sense that success means being successful in other people's eyes. And that starts with your parents' eyes. The problem starts with kids who are taught to do what other people want them to do. Their parents, but not just their parents. I mean, there are all sure, kinds of right. ways that these expectations get transmitted. They get transmitted at school. They get transmitted through peers. They certainly get transmitted through media and social media. So what we really need to do is to help create kids who are capable of deciding for themselves what matters to them. And then it's not about what choice they make, but how they make the choice. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, I think parents think that it's much easier to just kind of tell your kid what to do. And maybe on some level it is, but it generally leads to very bad outcomes. Hmm. So we can and should talk about how you help kids become the kind of person who can make their own choices. Um, 
But that's the essential thing. And again, I mean, whether a parent's conception of success is getting their kids into an Ivy League school or, or something else. I mean, maybe they're hippie bohemian parents who want their kids to follow in their path. That's not any better, <laughs> right? I live in Portland. There are a lot of parents like that who I think wouldn't be very happy if their kid, you know, wanted to go to a great college and become a lawyer. But if that's their path, that's what they should do. That is so interesting. And I think it's exactly what I was saying before, right? That we can have different view of what success is for our kids. And it's like we are trying to force our kid into this idea of success that we have so that they will be successful in our eyes so that we can feel like we did well, which is why I'm just calling it trophy kids. Yeah, I don't actually think this is such a, a new story. I, I think people have been writing about this for a while. I mean, really, the classic book about this that I encourage everyone to read, it's called The Drama of the Gifted Child. It's basically about what you call the trophy kid about the kid who's a narcissistic extension of their parents' expectations instead of their own person. Listen, I think it's a hard thing for parents. You don't have to have a narcissistic personality. To have fears for your kids, to have hopes for your kids, to want to sort of make everything right and kind of smooth their way in the world. And I think letting go of your child is really hard. I mean, it's the hardest thing that a parent can do, I think. But... As Julie Lithgott-Hames, who wrote this wonderful book called How to Raise an Adult, says the goal of being a parent is to raise an adult, to raise someone who's autonomous. And an autonomous person may very well make choices that you don't like. And raising a child who has the strength to, to defy you, if necessary, and certainly to disregard what you expect of them, really should be the goal of a parent. Parents say that they want their kids to be happy, which is perfectly reasonable. Who among us knows what makes another person happy? As if, as if any of us have discovered the secret to happiness. I mean, I think it's the work of a long life just to figure out what makes you happy. But to be able to say that you know in advance, before a person even is really much of a person, what it is that's going to make them happy, I think is absurd. And I think if we were talking about anybody but your own child, you would realize that it's absurd. So all you can do is equip them to figure that out for themselves. Well, so of course, then the million dollar question is, how do you do that? Uh, you know, I was a college professor and I, I, I've talked to a lot of students who, are, who are, were my students, who were students at other schools. I've talked to high school students. I'm not a parenting expert. Sure. But I think it's clear, it seems clear to me that you start to do it by giving your child autonomy, uh, age-appropriate autonomy, as early as they can start to handle that, mm. you know, starting from when you're teaching them to tie their shoelaces, to, I don't know, walk down to the end of the block and mail a letter. Whatever is appropriate for that age, I think kids should be given as much autonomy as they can handle so that they learn how to make and exercise choices, and they learn the consequences of their choices, and that sometimes their choices are bad choices, and they're going to regret their choices. That's part of life. <laughs> right. There seems to be a big drive among parents today, and I think this, this is relatively new. I don't think parents projecting their desires onto their children is new. I think what is relatively new is this sense that the best way 
to go about things is to protect your child from any kind of risk or failure, mm. which is obviously ridiculous because life is full of risk and failure. And what you need yeah. to do is help them learn how to handle risk and failure. And the only way to do that is to allow them to take risks and allow them to fail <laughs> and then right. help them process that failure after it happens, as it inevitably will. Then you build kids who are resilient and have, you know, quote unquote grit, which I know is a big buzzword now and all that jazz. You put yourself in this situation as a parent where the more you affirm their autonomy to make their own choices, inevitably you're going to come to a situation where they make a choice that you don't agree with. So what is it that you're looking for there? Is it that they made the choice for the right reasons versus the wrong reasons? Or how do you respond? I think you can start by not having such specific expectations about the choices that they're going to make mm. and being open to not only listening to who your kid actually is, but even more importantly, helping your kid listen to who they actually are and what they actually care about instead of telling them what to care about. Sure. You know, and, and, and I think you're going to have expectations in terms of, you know, doing your best, trying hard, giving it a real shot, not giving up too easily. Those are all reasonable expectations to have. You know, you want your kid to have a strong character. You want your kid not to just slack off. But again, to help them get in the direction that's the right direction for them, you know. Well, in the educational psychology literature, they would call this metacognition. Yeah. You're helping them to work through what it is that's important to me in this situation. And it's thinking about thinking, right? Working it through with them. That's that yeah. self-awareness. Yeah, I would think that that involves, you know, like talking to them about it. Yeah, being being self-aware. I mean, you know, there's this... Um, Obviously, we all know about helicopter parents, blah, blah, blah. Sure, yeah. Some of the adolescent psychologists who I found most useful, and I mean, they're, they're kind of the, the famous ones, Madeline Levine, who wrote The Price of Privilege, William Damon, who wrote The Path to Purpose, they talk about how parents of quote-unquote high achievers, these sort of helicopter parents who are very focused on, you know, creating quote-unquote successful kids, that communication is not a two-way street. Hmm. And if you ask the children of those parents, they will say, my parents actually don't really know what's going on with me. It's like they are intrusive, but they're not connected. Mm. They're both there and not there at the same time. Yeah. So talking to your kid or at your kid all the time might create an illusion that you're connected to them or that you're having a dialogue with them. But what you need to do is you need to listen. And sometimes listening means asking the right questions. I certainly found this as a professor. I mean, one of the, I mean, not one of the things, but the thing that set me on my path to writing about this stuff is that I was the kind of professor who really cared about being a mentor to students. And that didn't mean telling them what to do. It meant listening to them. But listening can often require eliciting, you know, the stuff that you want to listen to. In other words, asking questions, asking the right questions. So you're saying it was something that students would say to you or? I also just had students, any student I had, I would, when I first saw them in office hours, and I would always insist that they come and talk, I would just ask them about themselves. And I actually often found that students were not used to being asked about themselves and didn't really know how to answer. And I kind of had to make them feel comfortable. And I kind of had to, you know, where are you from? What do your parents do? And sometimes it wouldn't go beyond that. But sometimes 
they would end up realizing for the first time that they weren't necessarily feeling 100% about the path they were on. So they didn't always present that way. But as I talked to them and sort of gave them the permission to think about what they were doing at college, it would sometimes end up that way. What is it, do you think, that made students feel okay to open up to you in these situations about what was going on with them? Well, look, I mean, I don't think there's anything magical about this. I think that if you show people that you're interested in what they have to say, and this goes for whether they're talking about themselves or not, if you ask a question that shows that you've been paying attention to what they're saying, if you listen in a way that shows that you're interested and you have to actually be interested, you can't fake it, people want to tell their stories. And then, of course, obviously the other thing is to listen and respond in a way that's not judgmental. And that can also include disarming the judgments that people assume you're going to have about, you know, whatever it is. If it's high-achieving kids or even not just high-achieving kids, people often feel like they're going to be judged if they reveal that they're struggling, that they're having difficulty. You know, and if you create a non-judgmental listening environment, then, you know, people, people are, and not everybody, I mean, not every student, you know, would have these conversations with me, and that's totally fine. But the ones who, who needed to were able to. And I should say that I think that they were not encountering a lot of teachers in college who were willing to do that. So when they found one who was, they were, I think, eager to engage that. You talk about giving them the permission to open up. What do you think it was about you or about the environment that you created that made them feel that they had permission to open up and to talk about this stuff? Well, look, you can only create a non-judgmental environment if you're actually not judging people. You can't fake that. Mm. I mean, for me, I think this was the outcome of a very long process of working on myself because I grew up in a very judgmental environment, in a very judgmental family, in a very judgmental world. And I, of course, internalized those judgments. And a very big part of my own development had to do with relieving myself of those self-judgments. Hmm. And it was not easy, and it was not quick. But it brought me to a place where I'm able to not be judgmental, because I don't, I've learned not to judge myself that way, and I have enough life experience to know that most of these judgments of, people, of other people also are superficial. We've been speaking with Bill DeResowitz, author of the book, Excellent Sheep. We've uncovered some really interesting things, but there's still a lot more great stuff from Bill DeResowitz. In the second half of the show, Bill is going to tell us the single most important question to ask any teenager. What I think I can say is that probably every question I asked that really helped students get in touch with what they needed to get in touch with was some version of, what do you want? I mean, that's really what we're saying. What do you want? Sure. Uh, a lot of times the answer is I don't know. And that's the honest answer. Because how can you possibly know what you want if you've never been asked to think about it and you've never been asked to pursue it? And so that becomes the beginning of a process that can take a long time. I remember very well a student who was a really gifted musician who was explaining to me why she couldn't be a musician, like why that would be a ridiculous thing to try to be. And 
obviously she had internalized all this judgment about the social value of being a musician or something. And, you know, the, at that point you just ask, well, why not? Why can't you be? Because she was trying to tell me that, you know, what value does that really have? And I think I said, like, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, Bob Dylan's music has really never meant anything to anyone. <laughs> and and when, you, when you say these things out loud, you realize how idiotic they are. Mm. I mean, another thing that I say to parents when they express their fears and their kids, like, well, successful adults in general have not had linear paths, have made mistakes, have been confused. Just look at yourself. You made it. You made it to this point. Okay, your kid can do that too. They're not three years old anymore. They're not wearing diapers anymore. <laughs> you were that age once too. You figured it out. You got to give them a little more credit. There's a role for a, for a teacher, for an adult who is not your parent. And one of the reasons that role is so important is precisely because it is so much easier for someone who's not your parent to not load you with expectations, to not over-identify with you and treat you like an extension of themselves. A lot of parents today seem to think that they can have parenting relationships that are free of conflict. And I think that that's what that rhetoric of friendship is about. Like, I want to be friends with Mike. No, I mean, your kid is going to hate you sometimes. Your kid is going to reject you sometimes. I've come to think that one of the reasons that parents are so keen on avoiding negative feelings in their kids is that they want to avoid negative feelings in themselves. The way to get to financial stability is through developing the talents that are native to you, and pursuits that you can feel excited about. It's better to be a successful, I don't know, graphic designer, even if you're not making a fortune, than an unsuccessful engineer. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.